Hello and welcome to the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, brought to you by Journey Dog Training and the Pandemic Puppy Raising Support Group on Facebook. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm super excited to be raising my puppy, Niffler, alongside you. Although I'm a certified dog behavior consultant and a conservation detection dog trainer, I am new to puppy raising too, so we're right in the thick of all of this together. Today, we're talking to Dr. Leslie Ide about exercise and puppies. This is a hot topic and a super duper important one, particularly for our active breed puppies um, and our active owners, but really for everyone. And um, before Dr. Ide and I get into it, though, I want to cover a couple housekeeping things. As a reminder, this podcast is supported by our members over on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can support this podcast and get perks like submitting questions for us to tackle at the end of the episode. You can sign up over at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. So um, let's get to it. Um, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ide. Why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your work, how you got into it, and um, and your dogs. Thank you, Kayla. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so as Kayla already said, I'm a veterinarian. Um, I came about veterinary medicine in kind of a weird way. So my entire, basically my entire childhood was spent swimming um, competitively. And I was if fairly high level swimmer. Um, love doing it. I mean, the world just kind of revolved around swimming and my swimming schedule. So when I went to college, that's basically was my whole purpose. <laughs> I went to college to swim, you know, kind of just was like, I'll, you know, get a degree. Um, but wasn't, totally sure exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so yeah, so I just kind of, you know, did what interested me and people mm -hmm. always think it's interesting to find out like my undergraduate degree is actually in economics and European studies. Really? So <laughs> yeah, not really much to do with veterinary medicine. Um, that being said, when I finish swimming, so swimming, you get all these crazy trivia facts. Swimming is a winter sport in the United States. And so it ended in February of my senior year in college. So I still had March, April, three months before graduation. And mm -hmm. I immediately went out and got a puppy because I said, I'm done swimming. Now I can have a puppy. And, you know, I really did that before I still had any idea what I wanted to do after graduation, <laughs> but I knew I had to get a puppy. Um, so I got a puppy, immediately knew my puppy was going to be the best trained, most athletic puppy out there. I knew I was going to do agility um, and obedience, and I think... Probably a couple weeks into owning the puppy, people started saying, you know, you should really think about being a vet. And I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting thought. And, you know, I had dabbled in, like, thinking about being a doctor, so, like, a human doctor. Okay. So I was like, well, okay, that kind of, you know goes along okay, um, and then yeah. I actually yeah I had someone literally it was an older man literally look me in the face and tell me I could I would never be a vet I like <laughs> wouldn't get into vet school I like just all these things of like you won't be a vet. And I was like, challenge accepted. Um, so <laughs> I 
basically almost got another degree. Um, I'm like officially, I think, four credit hours away from a, a, a bachelor's in biology with a minor in chemistry because I had wow. to do all the prereqs to get into vet school, finish that, got into vet school, was sure in vet school that I was going to be a behaviorist. I was like, mm-hmm. I, that's what I want to do. I love training dogs. Um, so that's, I'm going to, that's for sure my specialty. Did my internship, whole other factors that kind of went into why I put being a behaviorist on hold. But one of the big things was uh, my surgeon in my internship was like, you know, there's this new field of rehab and sports medicine. And I've kind of got the impression, you know, this is after like working with them for almost a year. But he's like, I think you're kind of into dog sports. You're kind of a little <laughs> bit obsessed with it. I had been competing in agility for about five years at that point. And I was wow. like going to nationals. Like I was, I like I, I, all my competitive swimming nature had transferred into, into dog agility, agility um, competition. So he was like, you should look into this. And I was like, okay. And, you know, just kind of through a series of circumstances, I kind of forgot about it and like was like, "Eh, it's interesting. And then I ended Mm -hmm. up finding a program that I really liked, went through it, um, got my certificate in rehab therapy in 2012, basically started practicing pretty much purely just rehab and sports medicine. And then me being who I am, just really focused on sports medicine more than anything. I still think it's a very, like, even, even though we, we combine it like rehab and sports medicine, I think the sports medicine side is still very niche. I think Mm -hmm. most of the focus is rehab, like what to do after injury or surgery, but there's this whole huge field of sports medicine that really has you know, lots of room to grow and lots of room mm-hmm. for research. Um, so yeah, I've been doing that ever since about 2012. Um, and in the meantime, you know, I just continued to collect dogs to compete with. <laughs> um, I actually counted the other day for some reason. I was like, I had to do something where I had to like say how many dogs I had done agility with. And I found out the number is 10. Um, Wow. So I've competed with 10 different dogs. I will say within that some, you know, I I define competing as at least being in one trial. (laughs) So there, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a few of them that didn't have what I would call careers, but um, you know, probably 75% of them did, and um, probably about 75%, meaning that they have been to national events, um, or they're my two puppies, my two young dogs who haven't had the chance to go to any national mm-hmm. events yet because of the pandemic. But that is the ultimate goal that that they're going to be able to do that kind of stuff. So current dogs, um, there are, oh my gosh, I have to count. (laughs) I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. So there are currently eight dogs in the house. (laughs) Um, I claim five of them. Um, The oldest is Brink, who's almost 15. He's a retired Mm -hmm. Border Collie. Um, And then my next oldest is Stig, who will be 10 this year. And he's 
semi-retired. He's Mm -hmm. probably not really doing, going to do championship height anymore, but still loves playing agility. And then I have my three current, like, competition dogs. Um, Ghost, who is, oh my gosh, an eight-year-old. Um, Australian <laughs> Shepherd is, you know, my primary dog right now. And then my two young dogs who are finally getting to trial as things open up. But I have a three-year-old Border Collie named Watson, and he's from Japan. And a two-year-old Border Collie named Finnick, who is from England. Gotcha. I can't believe they're, they're two and three already. I know. Um, holy cow. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, yeah. It, and it's so fascinating to get to hear kind of your whole backstory and how you got into this. And I think that that hopefully ties into for people who are listening, um, you know, why we wanted to have you on this podcast, because I could have asked my I love my my vet here in Missoula, and I could have asked her to be on this. But I really love talking to someone who's got much more of this, like you are so focused on the sports medicine, and the rehab sides of things. And that is, as you said, pretty unique. So when we're thinking about um, making sure that our puppies get to grow into really happy, healthy, confident adults um, on the physical side of things, you're the first person I thought of. And we've already had, we've had Dr. Jen Summerfield on to talk about, you know, socialization and uh, kind of the behavioral side of things. So let's, let's kind of start out with like, why are people so worried about exercise for puppies? And like, what, are the concerns that we need to be really thinking about and what is overblown? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, I think the answer truly goes back to human nature. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we want to have, we want to know why something happened in the hopes that then we can prevent it. Right. You know, you think about, uh, you know, think anything like, um, you were doing, I, I mean, I, I, there's everything is an example so much so that I can't even think of just one. But so if we look at puppies and we think about a lot of things that happen with puppies, um, that scare us. So let's say hip dysplasia is a big mm-hmm. thing, right? So mm-hmm. we're always like, Oh, I don't want my puppy to get hip dysplasia. Well, we want to have something controllable to in order to prevent it, right? We want to control, mm-hmm. we want to make sure everything is just perfect. And if that, if we can do that, they won't get hip dysplasia. And so one of the biggest things is that I think people like to say we can control is exercise. And they think that if we control this exercise, they won't develop problems or they won't hurt themselves or, you know, X, Y, and Z won't happen Mm -hmm. down the road because we did all this perfect stuff. And I think a lot of it comes from, you know, there are a few bits of research uh, papers and studies out there, but we still have to remember like always that correlation doesn't equal causation but we want it to. And so we make up these weird rules, like, um, speaking with hip dysplasia, you know, there's this big thing about like, don't let your puppy do stairs because if you do, they'll get hip dysplasia. And that comes from 
basically like a correlation study. They were looking at mm-hmm. a large group of puppies and some puppies had free access to run around as much as they wanted. They could take the stairs, you know, if they wanted to, but they didn't have to. And some puppies were actually forced to go up and down the stairs a certain number of times a day. You know, they were like, you know, come on, let's do this. And then some puppies did absolutely nothing, no exercise, no free access or whatnot. And they saw that the puppy is that didn't move around at all. And the puppies that had to do the stairs had a higher incidence of hip dysplasia. And so what a lot of people took from that was like, oh, stairs cause hip dysplasia. It's like, no, that's not the case. Um, What I think we should take from that study is the fact that the puppies that were given free exercise did the best. So, yeah, you know, yeah, the giving them, yeah, letting them self-regulate, not saying, hey, you have to come do this with me, but like you get to choose, um, you know, those are the dogs that seem to have the best development. And what's interesting to me, if I had to look at that, and then we also look at like some anecdotal evidence from sled dog puppies, Um, what we find is that dogs that have orthopedic issues like hip dysplasia are often ones that choose not to exercise as much. And because they make that choice, they feel better, right? They're not pushing themselves to the extreme, but they're still doing what they, they can to feel good. Um, so I think I, I still like, to me, it goes back to like, we don't really understand everything that causes hip dysplasia or some of these other puppy issues. You know, it's not just hip dysplasia, but it mm-hmm. usually is when, when thinking about exercise, we're usually trying to minimize or prevent some kind of orthopedic issue that, you know, maybe the breed has a higher incidence of, or we have a higher um, experience with, so we're afraid of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But really, there's nothing that shows that exercise causes certain problems, or that um, you know, even on the other hand, that exercise, like certain exercise or specific exercise necessarily benefits anything, at least not yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I know, you know, we were talking right before we got on about, you know, a, I, I think we've all seen this like, oh, don't, you know, you, your puppy can exercise five minutes a day for every week or month or whatever it is in their, in their development. And, you know, you were saying that there's just not really any, anything to that at all. And there's really no evidence to any of this, like, exercise prescriptions for puppies. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's quite a few out there. There's, you know, different groups that have come up with um, like charts um, and things like this five minutes per month of age. And I think, I do think it comes from a, a good place. You know, we're trying Mm -hmm. to be proactive. We're trying to, help people understand because you know a lot of times we're like oh just use common sense well if this is your first puppy ever 
you may have no idea, like, you know, yeah, or a new breed or, yeah. or so whatever. I, it, I don't know what common sense would mean raising your first, I mean, I'm raising my first crazy border collie puppy right now where I'm just like, I, I, well, and even like free exercise has been challenging for me as far as defining that. Cause I'm just like, he will, he will go right as right. far as I let him. And as long as I let him and, I do feel like at some point I'm probably supposed to help him <laughs> self-regulate. Um, right. And so but, that's why but yeah, trying to figure that out is it's not actually it's, common sense, even for, uh, you know, supposed experts. Right. Uh, and, and so that's why I think all these like guidelines and charts, like they mm-hmm. come from a place of good, but then I think they, they quickly turn into ways to, you know, blame people and, you know, mm. you know, you get the other hand of it where, you know, something does happen to the puppy and they're like, well, you know, they were only four months old. You should have only been doing 20 minutes of walking and you were doing 30 minutes of walking. So you, obviously you caused the problem. And it's like, right. no, there's nothing out there that says like has shown like that standard equates to any kind of like you will keep them safe if you just stay within this realm um and so for me it is about you know self-regulation but it's also i think what what helps with that the most is observation and that's where we need to as professionals get better about teaching people how to observe their puppies and understand Mm -hmm. signs for when they're, they are actually tired when they need to stop. And that's when we intervene. Um, because I think, and it can be different for every dog. So that's what makes it hard as well. So like, you know, for the border collie, it might be that, you know, their tongue has, you know, completely flattened out with the little, you know, spoon shape on the end of it. And you're like, you know, they're willing to still like play fetch and run and do all this stuff. But you're like, no, I can physically see the difference. (laughs) You need to stop. Um, Whereas like for our little Icelandic sheepdog, Rhea, she, (laughs) her signs of having enough is she starts getting really bitey. You know, she actually Mm -hmm. starts trying to like bite the other dogs a little bit more to control their movement a little bit Mm -hmm. more. Because I think, you know, she really wants to keep up with them and, you know, do all the exercise um, that they're doing. And so when she's tired, her first go-to is like, well, I'm going to try and slow them down so that I can right, do it. Yeah. And like that, so I can keep up. Yeah. yeah. And that is a key to us of like, oh, she's tired. We need to stop or she needs to have a, have a break. Yeah. Um, you know, when they're really little, I think it's a little bit easier because you can, uh, you know, see things like, oh, suddenly they're dragging behind me, whereas, you know, they were in front of me on the walk. Or every time we pass shade, they go in the shade and stop. You know, there Mm -hmm. are some more universal kind of obvious signs, but as they learn more and more fun things happen when we're doing Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff, those signs I think are easier to miss because they're like, Oh, I don't need to stop now. There's, I know there's a fun thing coming up. So we have to get better at reading the signals that they're showing us, even if they think they can keep going forever and ever. 
Yeah, yeah. So it is, it's, you know, it's puppy directed and letting them have this free movement, but still also, you know, trying to use our primate brains and our adult brains to, to help them like recognize, (laughs) recognizing when they're tired and when they might need a break. Um, And then one of the other, you know, questions, are there activities like I know, and you know, it's all going to be age dependent, but are there any activities that you would say are relatively clearly no goes for puppies? Um, And that again is probably going to vary based on age of puppy, like a, a 10 week old versus a seven month old is a very different beast. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of it is um, you can introduce things, but you don't want to overdo it. So I kind of think of like I'm I wouldn't ever say like it's wrong to take a four month old puppy on a five mile run. Except that I'm going to guess that four-month-old puppy hasn't had enough time to build up to that distance, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to think about, like, I think that's what humans forget a lot. Like, if you're a runner, you're used to just running a certain amount, like, every day, right? You just have that routine. And what you don't think about is, like, okay, well, maybe you, like, went on vacation for two weeks or something and you didn't run. And when you come back, you know, you run a little slower. Maybe you decide to go a little less distance. Well, that Mm -hmm. puppy hasn't had any running, right? So you have to go back. It's like, you know, think about when you just first started running. That's Mm -hmm. what you have to go back to for that puppy. Right, which for, Um, I've been a runner semi-competitively since fifth grade. So like trying to remember what it was like the first time I tried to run three miles is really hard. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, and so I yeah. think that's where we forget that. Cause we just expect them. And because dogs are just, they want to be with us, you know, they have that inherent drive of just, you know, th- you know, thinking we're the best thing on earth. So mm-hmm. like often when we're like, Hey, let's go for a run, you know, they're super happy to do it. And totally. we may not understand like when we hit that point that they're lagging behind on the leash or they're, you know, they're like, I want to go investigate the shade. And we're like, no, we have two more miles to go. Um, Mm -hmm. We need to actually listen to the puppy and go back. So I think that's a really important part of it. I, I also think, you know, it's not maybe the best thing for puppies at younger ages to go on a run like that every day. Like maybe you Mm -hmm. leave them at home one day and then they run the next and then you leave them at home the next day. You know, you kind Mm -hmm. of give them plenty of recovery time. Um, There were studies done because everyone worries about you know, excessive exercise in puppies hurting them. And there, there were quite a few studies actually done on puppies with lots of mileage put on the treadmill. I feel like I, I feel like I always second guess myself on the number, but I want to say it was like they were taking these puppies. And, and when I say puppies, I think it was around six months old like they weren't baby babies but they weren't like 
you know, 11 and a half months old or whatever. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I, I want to say they were running them 20 kilometers a day on the treadmill. Whoa. And then, you know, they went and, and looked at after so many um, days of that, they went and looked in their joints to see if there were any issues. And really what they find found was there, there wasn't any, damage. There wasn't any Mm -hmm. obvious sign that we had created any kind of joint disease um, because of that exercise. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important to know. Um, I still like, obviously, I'm not, you know, advocating of like, just go out and run with them. It's fine. Mm -hmm. I still would always pick free choice exercise like so in a perfect world if i wanted to run with my dog i would go somewhere where the dog could be off leash and if they chose to you know run with me awesome but if they needed to like go lay down in the middle of the field while i kept running around it you know they could do that Mm -hmm. um and so i think Mm -hmm. that kind of I, i still think it's really important to consider that like free choice. Um, as long as they have that kind of self-regulation and freedom, there's not necessarily like one activity where I'd be like, they can't do it. Everything that I am worried about has to do with like the person asking them to do it. So like jumping always comes up. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when they're just out like walking in the woods, they will choose to jump over things. Um, And, you know, you see them in the house, like they get hit a certain um, age and they're like, now I can jump on the couch and, (laughs) you know, all these activities, like they're not scared of jumping, you know, jumping in in and of itself, I don't think necessarily is a problem. It's more Mm -hmm. when we say, oh, I need to start jump training with this four-month-old dog. And we go out and we ask them to do, you know, 20 jumps in the morning, then 20 jumps Mm -hmm. in the evening. And we do that day after day after day. And of course, you know, we might say, oh, well, they have the freedom to stop. You know, we're not forcing them to actually jump. Um, But these dogs, you know, they, we have made them so they want to work with us. So they want to right. do things. Yeah. And then we're giving them <laughs> things for doing that behavior that encourage that behavior to happen again. So they offer mm-hmm. it again, you know? And um, so we have to be careful, I think, with that of saying, well, they, they have the, the choice to quit any time and they are choosing to keep doing it. But if we're asking them, you know, to do it over and over again, we could potentially be um, creating problems down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing and, and any kind of um, the other thing I have a, a big deal with, uh, kind of with is I don't like to do a lot of puppy fitness exercises where we, have to, um, push on their body. So I guess in like behavior terms, it would be more of like using molding to get what we want, Mm -hmm. where we actually physically are like kind of putting them or pushing them into the positions that we want for the exercise versus again, if they, you know, for doing fitness exercises and they're offering behaviors, I'm pretty, 
pretty much okay with the entire realm of um, fitness behaviors that you might get. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, We are going to take a super quick break to hear about a word from our sponsors. And then we're going to come back and talk about other guidelines and whether it's breed dependent and individuals and neuter status and all sorts of fun stuff. So don't, don't go anywhere. This podcast is supported by the Puppy Raising Blueprint course, which you can find at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. In this course, which is partnered between Journey Dog Training and Canine of Mine, I guide you through everything from common problem behaviors like biting and potty training to the humane hierarchy of dog training. It's always available on a self-study basis at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. As a new puppy owner, I know how often we're cleaning up. While there's no replacement for management, supervision, and training, Clean Carl's has my back for the times that I slip up and Niffler has an accident. Clean Carl's pet mess products get rid of stains and odors from dog poop and cat pee and everything in between without any added scents so your house won't smell like poop or cleaning products. Plus, they're safe to use around both pets and kids. Next time your furry friend has an accident, try Clean Carl's pet mess zapper and remover. Use the code JOURNEY10 and get 10% off your first order. Just head over to cleancarls.com and use code JOURNEY10 at checkout. All right. And we are back. So I think, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, these different activities and no-goes that we may or may not have and guidelines. And I think, you know, one of the things that I always think about when we, and we've already hinted at this, but how breed dependent it may be as far as I know that, excuse me, we talk about some of our giant breed puppies maturing more slowly versus some of our smaller breeds. So are there guidelines uh, as far as that goes, you know, if someone's listening with a Newfie versus someone else who's listening with a, a Bichon, have they got <laughs> any different uh, different guidelines for them? Or is it still just, I mean, is it all just so individual that breed doesn't matter? <laughs> yeah, I, I think a little bit. Like if I, yeah, I would pretty much still be like, look at the dog in front of you, not mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, you know, it's a Bichon, so it's going to progress exactly like this. Um, You know, there's a general idea, I think, when you get a breed, but still, even within every breed, you know, each dog is an individual. I think where most people um, kind of, or, or what they focus on with, like, breeds, and like you said, really small breed versus giant breed, is uh growth plates and like Mm -hmm. is when do the growth plates close because for some reason again there's not really any evidence out there but for some reason it became very popular to focus on when the growth plates close that's when it's okay to do whatever you want um Hmm. and I'm going to say there's there's a little bit of a flaw with that in that if you protect them and don't let them do anything until their growth plates close, then their body really hasn't adapted to much stress. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this case, we're talking like actual physical stress, not just mental stress. Um, And so then if you, you know, they go, what, 12 months and haven't had any, you know, physical stress that they've had to adapt to. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, go, you know, run agility courses and Mm -hmm. um, dock dive. And, you know, now you can have freedom in the, you know, 20 acre park and whatnot. 
um, that's actually worse for their body because mentally they'll pro- they probably are like, yes, I can do it. I finally got my freedom. Um, yeah. but their, their body's not ready for it. So there's, there's a greater risk for injury at that point. Um, what's really interesting is that I, I still think kind of looking at when growth plates close can, can help guide us a little bit in how much exercise mm-hmm. to do. But I really still think it's about, um, observing your dog and what, what, again, coming back to what they choose to do and what they're showing you they can do and then building off of that. Um, so what I mean by that is like, when you first see a dog, um, one of the big things for me, when I first see my dog walk backwards, I'm like, oh, cool. I can add that to our list of behaviors mm-hmm. and we can start using that as a fitness exercise because they've just showed me they're mature enough and aware enough of their body that they know how to do it. Now, the one thing I might, I mean, I think body awareness is important for all dogs, but I might make mm-hmm. a, um, a recommendation if you do have a giant breed dog to spend a little bit longer working on body awareness with them. Um, yeah. one, because they tend to, they seem to take longer. I don't know if it really is that they take longer, but they seem to generally have trouble knowing like, how much space they're taking up, how long they are. Um, Yeah, where their butt is in space. (laughs) Yeah, where their butt is, um, all of these things. Um, And yeah, it really, (laughs) it it might be slightly more important for them to to Yeah, yeah, maybe we just notice more when a Newfoundland sits on us than we do when like a whippet does. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think, um, I, you know, yes, this maturity thing is, is, is part of it, but I, I also think it's just size in general and what we, what we see more obviously. Um, I also feel like I see the biggest difference in, uh, you know, girls or yeah, girls versus boys. Like, I feel like the girls have much more physical maturity and body awareness Mm -hmm. a lot earlier on. And the boys Mm -hmm. seem to always take a little bit longer. And I'm always having to go maybe a little bit slower with their fitness training Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. sport training, because, you know, they, they have a tendency to just want to go all in, I think from the beginning. Um, and kind of, who cares what happens to my body? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, te- I tend to take a little bit more time with boys. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I know my my boy is definitely a, yeah, he's a little bit of a hurricane. <laughs> um, is there anything, you know, as we're thinking about other things that may be under our control, and we don't have to dive too deep into this because I know this is a whole other Pandora's box, but like neuter status, um, as far as exercise, um, is there anything that can be said there that like, is, do we know anything about it? It's still, there's a lot to be learned. I think, um, I think what we know the most about is really 
early spay and neuter. And what's funny is um, kind of what the definition is of early spay and neuter. I think a lot of non-vet people hear, hear that and they think, oh, well, under six months old is early spay and neuter. And I'm like, no, early spay and neuter is literally that they're like, they hit that two pound cutoff. Yeah. So as yeah. soon as they weigh two pounds, they can be spayed or neutered. So we're getting like, yeah, six week old puppies, um, mm-hmm. like really, really early. And that's definitely that category is where we see a lot of um, potential orthopedic issues that again, we see correlation yeah. But I don't think we're quite to that step yet to to say it definitely caused it, but we definitely see changes in structure um, with that early spay and neuter. So we know that really interesting, and this is probably a little bit like where maybe where the worry about growth plates came in to the exercise talk, but basically we know with um, when you take those hormones away, the growth plates actually stay open longer. And so we get dogs that are, have longer limbs than their counterparts that are either still entire or were spayed or neutered much later in life. And so because of that, you know, because we're seeing that change in structure, there's definitely a um, theory is that that could potentially predispose them or be another risk factor for orthopedic disease like mm-hmm. hip dysplasia or cruciate tears. So um, it, it's interesting. Um, but I think, like I said, we really only know with that super young range. I think yeah. when we start to get into like, um, you know, six months old, which was kind of the traditional time to spay and neuter, at least when I was going to vet school. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, to that one year of age range, we don't really know that it makes much difference, um, mm-hmm. orthopedically with, you know, orthopedic problems. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, we're definitely talking specifically orthopedically here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I know I like it's so interesting coming from my my background is largely in sheltering and then now kind of moving into more more and more into sport and working dog worlds and um yeah, it's so common in the shelter to, you know, as soon as they're two pounds. I mean, I just had a litter of foster kittens that as soon as they hit two pounds, they were back to the shelter to get to get spayed and neutered and and adopted out. Um yeah. And uh, and yeah, it's it's so interesting to kind of see the the differences in in arguments on on all of that. So, um, and I think my last <clears throat> excuse me, my last question that I had for you was, you know, how do we know when it's safe to add in activities for puppies as they age? And I think we've kind of already covered that as far as watching them um, and kind of adding per- kind of adding in things as we're already seeing that the puppy is showing us they know how to do it and that they're capable of doing it. Do you have anything else that you want to add about exercise and puppies or any other parting thoughts before we do have a Patreon question for you, but uh, we'll uh, anything else. You know, I think for me, um, I I would say it's, it's one of those things that like 
always, you know, trust your gut. So if something is telling you, I probably shouldn't be doing this with this puppy, then don't do it. But don't be scared to try things. You know, mm-hmm. one of one of the biggest things that I always say to my clients is we're going to take a trial and success approach. You know, we're going to try mm-hmm. different things and whatever is successful, that's what we're going to take and we're going to keep uh-huh. on doing. And so it, it may be that, you know, you think, oh, my puppy is ready for this and you try it and they clearly show you they're not. Then you just, you know, put that on the back burner. You say, yeah, okay, well, I tried it. Maybe I'll try again in a couple weeks. Um, let's do, you know, whatever else it is that, that I know they can do and works. Um, and then the other thing I would do is, you know, always, always seek someone to help you. You know, that's where people, um, like me are, (laughs) you know, why I'm here is if you have questions about like, is this okay? Am I doing this right? You know, seek out, um, help from someone who has been doing it for a longer amount of time and can help you through the process. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good, uh, good advice, and that's generally. I mean, we we give that sort of advice a lot of here on this podcast. Is you know, take up your specific case with with your vet, or we'll help you find a specialist vet if that's what needs to happen. Um, you know, we're uh, don't don't expect us to diagnose or treat everything um, in our our generic podcast uh, format. <laughs> that's what one on one stuff is for. Um, but with that, we are going to go into one little specific uh, case study, um, and it's a little long, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it because I think it's going to make us both smile, and it also gives a little bit of useful back in- back uh, backstory. So it is from um, one of our patrons, and it says, My sweet almost seven-month-old Border Collie can be a bit of a hurricane. Most things are done at 100 miles an hour minimum. He's been checked out by a great CCRP um, I'm and an amazing vet physio. I'm not sure what a CCRP is. Do you know? It's one of the rehab certifications. Cool. So a, a certified canine rehab practitioner. Ah, okay. Um, and an amazing vet physio who are both really happy with how he's developing physically. They've been working on body awareness since she brought him home to try to help him know, understand, and move his body. However, any and all body awareness he has learned flies out the window when he's really excited. Um, and she gives the example that they were joking that he nearly injured himself trying to enthusiastically lift, lift his leg on a stump before class. Um, and then now, after an enthusiastic play session with another dog, he's now sitting with an iliopsoas injury. And she's left wondering how to make sure he stays healthy and still gets to do things and be a puppy. Do we have any tips for building resilience and how to help enjoy injuries for an enthusiastic pup? And I kind of clarified with her. She means kind of both mentally as far as like helping the puppy learn to keep its knowledge on board, even when it's excited, as well as like physical skills as far as like limbering up or strength or anything that we can be thinking about for our our wild teenage boy puppies and, and teenage girl puppies. Really all our <laughs> all our are slightly older puppies. I mean, this definitely listening to that. The first thing that came to my head was, uh, how to deal with arousal. Um, and mm-hmm. especially in an adolescent border collie. And like I said, then we throw in boy on top of that. And just, <laughs> you know, when there's something fun happening, all thought kinds of kind of flies out the window. Um, mm-hmm. all being careful is gone. Um, so I think number one, uh, you know, the fact already that you're doing so much body awareness and fitness type stuff is really great. And you should keep doing that 
with the goal. So what I really think about with that is building a lot of muscle memory. So Mm. this is kind of hard to explain in a like brief synopsis, but um, (laughs) one of the, one of the things we're doing when we're trying to do injury prevention type um, conditioning is we almost want to set up scenarios that might happen so that the dog has that muscle memory to be able to cope with it if it does happen like in the middle of an agility run. So what I mean by that is like, um, you know, we might do a lot of like three-legged stands on instability equipment. So equipment Mm -hmm. that moves and gradually the amount that it moves gets more and more and more. And the dog learns how to be able to still balance even with only three legs. And the way that correlates to like agility is, you know, think about the dog who's running as fast as they can across the dog walk and one leg just doesn't hit the plank because maybe it's come, you know, sideways a little bit and they go to hit the ground with it in their gait and there's nothing there. If they've already had a lot of work with that, um, three-legged stand, um, mm-hmm. plus other things. I mean, we have to throw in like dynamic balance. And I mean, there's just all kinds of exercise physiology that goes into it, but uh-huh. they have that muscle memory that they like autom- that they can automatically engage the muscles to still balance on three legs. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times that helps um, save the, the problem. So they, they like don't end up like crashing on their head off of the dog Mm -hmm. walk. So that is why, I mean, just in general doing a a injury prevention and and I don't want to just focus on injury prevention. I would call, you know, canine conditioning program is so important and it's important to start as puppies. But on the other hand, side of it, I do think, um, working on arousal levels is extremely important, especially in these, um, border collies as well. So just always trying to keep them mentally present so that they have the sense of mind, um, to somewhat yeah. take care of their body, um, is important. And, you know, I end up doing a lot of, um, kind of, um, oh, I don't even know what the proper word is necessarily for them, but just a lot of like thinking games. So, um, it's even part of my warm up before an agility run where, you know, if, if they can't do it, if they can't kind of pass the test, then I'm like, they're not in a state of mind to actually be able to go and mm-hmm. do this run. And we have to accept that. So to help them get into that state of mind, you know, doing things like um, scatters and I'll do a lot of like pattern feeding and, and um, you know, just a lot of techniques to help kind of settle them and be ready to go. And I think it's really important to do that um, at class where they're usually really excited. Um, but also like you can do that within play sessions, you know? So if they're getting really excited playing with another puppy, being able to, you know, say, okay, come over here. Let's just take a few breaths. Let's Mm -hmm. do a little bit of, um, a scatter to calm down and then go back to playing. I think that can really help them start to, um, 
self-regulate their arousal level, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That sounds very similar to, yeah, I think my first thoughts were a lot on that, like, arousal management sort of side and, like, helping make sure that the puppy is actually in a state of mind where they can, you know, not only take care of their own bodies, but also respond to the other dogs that they're playing with or or whatever else and just be a more, um, yeah, a better play partner. And it's yeah. funny, uh, you know, hearing you talk about, like, I love the idea of building in some of these dynamic balance exercises and those sorts of things, which um, we'll have to, we'll make sure that we link to where people can find you to learn more about all of that. Cause we don't have time to get into it, but I was, um, I was just thinking I have a good friend who's um, pretty competitive in martial arts and he had a really bad fall um, hiking uh, a couple months ago now. And he was just talking about how he was like, if I didn't have so much practice falling, I probably would have broken my wrists. But like, he just like, because of all this martial arts that he does, yeah. he was fine. And, you know, we can do the same thing for our dogs, where yeah. if we really teach them that that muscle memory and get them really comfortable in their physical body, like, a, eventually that muscle memory will be able to kick in. And, you know, maybe with our seven-month-olds, it's just not quite there yet, yeah. especially when we layer, we layer puppy brain and puppy body on top of a shorter <laughs> learning history. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's hard. That's a hard age. Um, I mean, you've, you've got all, a lot of things stacked against you at that, <laughs> at that point, but, um, yeah. you'll, you'll get through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, my puppy, I think is almost the exact same age. And I, as, as, um, this patrons, um, Niffler is going to be seven. Actually he's seven months yesterday. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he's just like, and yeah, he's still intact and it's just like right in the thick of just like he, everything needs to be trampled and run into at full speed. And there's just like limbs and tails everywhere. Yeah. And like, it's crazy. Just, oh my gosh. He's so emotional and physical all at the same time. Holy cow. Like he's just like this little <laughs> hormonal mess. It's so funny. Um, when I'm in a good mood, <laughs> when I'm in a bad mood, I'm just like, I'm going to go put you in a crate for a while right now. Cause I, yeah. I don't, I don't like you right now. I'm going to take the seven year old for a walk. <laughs> um, well, okay. So thank you so much, Dr. Ide. Where can people find you online, especially, you know, any courses where they can, they can learn more about like dynamic balance and all of these things that we've hinted at. Um, yeah. Um, so you can find me at the total canine and that is canine all spelled out c-a-n-i-n-e.com that's my website um i have matching uh facebook so total canine and my instagram is a little bit different it's total then the letter k and the number nine and an s <laughs> so total canines um that's the best place to start for kind of the basic information. And that's where I will, I try to keep things up to date on those three platforms of like when I have classes and um, when new things are coming out. Um, I do have something fairly big if you're really <laughs> interested in both mm -hmm. agility and fitness um, coming out at the end of the month, but I don't think I'm allowed to say yet. Ooh. <laughs> well, um, how about this? The, we'll, when... <laughs> yeah, this is going to drop, I think, in two weeks. So we're recording on May 18th. 
So as soon as you know, why don't you update? You let me know. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes. I was gonna say um, if, this, if it's two weeks, that should be June, correct? When this yes, okay. Well, then I think I can say so. Excellent. There will be um, basically I'm joining Bad Dog Agility VIP <gasps> program. Ooh. So um, yeah, you guys might, if you're into agility, you probably know of Bad Dog Agility. They have a VIP membership, which is a really awesome program. Um, you get so much each month. Well, now as a kind of a bonus add-on, every month you can basically add on Canine Fitness specifically wow. for agility from me so it's called mm-hmm. it's going to be called uh basically bat dog agility vip plus canine fitness wow. so yeah so i'm really looking forward to that i'm super excited it'll be so much content like every month you'll you're definitely you'll get new exercises to do but then there'll be um kind of these uh webinar mini webinar type things where we talk about things like dynamic um balance mm-hmm. and um wow. you know my five components of a warm-up and you know things like that so um that's, that's awesome yeah. yeah we'll uh we'll make sure and we'll make sure to link to all of that and particularly for people who are interested in agility i'm sure they'll they'll know where to find it but we'll make sure that everyone has all the links to all of your things yeah. um and they can keep track of you and follow, follow what's going on. Um, so again, thank you so much to our listeners. Um, make sure that you subscribe, review and consider supporting the podcast and getting more info by joining our Patreon. Again, that's at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. You can sign up for the puppy raising blueprint course at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint and join that free pandemic puppy raising support group on Facebook. You can find our show notes and everything else you could ever want to know about us at journeydogtraining.com. Um, you can find us on, oh my gosh, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. As of like the last couple months, I'm now on Twitter and TikTok. So uh, finally decided to join those two platforms. So we'll, uh, we'll see you guys around. We're easy to find. Um, and thank you again for coming on, Dr. I. Thank you. It was a pleasure.